statistically speaking, half the people, half the people that get married, their first marriage will end within 10 years. 10 years. The second and third marriage, it goes up considerably. Uh, someone writes this. I witnessed a television wedding recently that was standard issue in every way but one. The bride and groom were formally dressed. There were flowers, beautiful music, and family and friends in attendance. Rings were exchanged. Vows were spoken, but with one slight variation. The bride and groom promised to love and cherish, honor and sustain, but not as long as they both shall live. Oh no. These two promised to keep their vows as long as they both shall love. Shall love. Just one letter change. Shall live. Shall love. But oh, what a difference that one letter makes. This person goes on. What they were saying is this. Our love is conditional. It is for now. But it may not be for always. We'll have to see how it feels down the road. If the day should come when we stop loving each other, the deal is off the burner. The commitment is no longer binding if we don't feel loving toward one another. And that's the modern view of marriage. But it's a total misunderstanding of love. Being a pastor a number of years, uh, for 30 plus years, when I first had couples come into my office, often it was over very, very serious issues, over abuse, over um, marital unfaithfulness. But I've noticed the last couple of years that whenever people come into my office and they're contemplating divorce, it is usually not anywhere along those lines. It's usually along the lines of, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with the person I'm married to. And I listen. And I understand what they're saying. But much of life is filled full of unhappiness. You stay committed through the good times and bad times to get past the moments of unhappiness to get on to the good times again, so to speak. No doubt it takes two people. It takes two people. It does not take one. It takes two people both partners must go beyond as long as we are both in love to to as long as we both shall live. Now, maybe there might be an individual or a couple here this morning who would say, my marriage is it's hit a difficult time. Or others of you would say, my marriage did end a number of years ago. Or as a parent of grown children, I walked through the painful process of my kids divorcing. Or I've had friends who've gone through divorce. Maybe, as, as I said earlier, this may be a very, very difficult time for you and your relationship with your spouse. 
What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about divorce? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we see the behind look here, you might want to say, at Adam and Eve in their very, their very first marriage. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, and I want us to look at verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible. And I want you to notice in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Would you drop down to verse 18? The Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then look at verses 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with the flesh. Then the Lord God made a, a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my blood and flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And if you've ever heard anybody exposit this particular uh, last two verses, you understand that that's not really uh, what Adam said. He basically said, wow, wrap her up. Here she is. This is a beautiful creature that God has blessed me with and God has given to me. And so God gave Adam Eve. In that first marriage, there was no wedding march. There were no vows exchanged. There was no wedding uh, photographer there. There were no people walking. Listen, there were no people walking down the aisle distributing those little petals of flowers, no little children like that. It was just no uh, priest or pastor in these special, uh, no tuxedos, no wedding gown, just a simple covenant relationship, a man and a woman coming together, spelled out in simple terms and covenant, and look at this covenant found in verses 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and though they both should become one flesh, Adam and his wife were both unclothed, and they felt no shame. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, I see three ingredients, so to speak, in these last two verses for a successful marriage relationship. Three special ingredients. And the first one that we read about is, is number one, separation from all competing loyalties. Separation from all competing loyalties. It says, a man, contacts woman as well, She'll leave her father and mother. Competing loyalties. The number one priority in a marital relationship, other than God, is your husband or your wife. Not mother or father, brother or sister, not grandparent or grandma. Somebody has said that this is so important to have a successful marriage. The umbilical cord must be cut. Must be cut. Are you saying, Pastor Ron, that I cannot be close to my mother and father? I'm not saying that. 
But you're not to be dependent upon them. You're to be dependent upon one another. You can't be dependent upon your family for finances and for emotional support. Now, I understand in some certain situations that may not be absolutely true. But, but the perfect, the ideal situation is, is you're supposed to be dependent upon one another. And the umbilical cord has to be cut. Your spouse is to be number one priority in your life. And this is the key, the first key to a successful marriage relationship. It's a separation from all competing loyalties. Number two, we read about the super glue locking commitment. God's word says, leave father and mother and be united to his wife, united to her husband. The King James Version, I believe, says to cleave to one another. Another translation says to be united to one another. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? Unless you go into the marital relationship with the idea that you're going to stay with your spouse through the thick and thin and the good times and the bad times, you will choose eventually the escape clause. You'll get out of it any which way. If there's something in the back of your mind that says, if they get sick, if we have financial reverses, if they don't meet my emotional needs, if they don't meet my financial needs, I'm out of here. The person will take that route Every single time. And so we're talking about permanence. We're talking about being united together. We're talking about ahead of time, making up our mind, driving a stake in the ground, saying through the good times and bad times, whatever may come our way, hell or high water, I'll never mention that D word. I might want to wring your neck or I might want to hit you over the head with a club, but I'm not going to mention that D word. I understand it takes two people, not just one. It takes two people with that kind of commitment. The third key is sensitivity or intimacy. Sensitivity or intimacy. We read in verse 25, look at it with me. Adam and his wife were both unclothed and they felt no shame. We're talking about Tenderness. We're talking about meeting emotional and physical needs. God ordained intimacy that was completely stain-free of, of sin. No shame. A complete absence of self-consciousness. And this is something that Christian couples should strive for and work for in today's world. You know, the Apostle Peter says that we are to make a case study of our spouses he says that to men. Men, live with your wives. And he's really talking about making this case study, looking under your, underneath a microscope at your wife and trying to figure out all of her, uh, what makes her tick and what makes her go and what are her fears are and what, our goal, uh, what her aspirations are. And women, the context tells us that we're to do that as well. We're to put our husbands under the microscope. And I think... Wives have an easier time at doing this than typically a man does for his wife. But both, both people are to examine um, what drives and what needs that spouse has. 
And so a typical man says, well, I live with my wife. We're not talking about just living with her. We're not talking about like just taking space up in the bedroom or taking space in the kitchen area. But it means living in the sense that you're aware of her needs that she has in her life. And so we're talking about intimacy. We're talking about um, sensitivity. These are all three key ingredients to a successful marriage. But I want you to note something here. In Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden, sin takes a hold on the superglue permanence and commitment, even more than separation from competing loyalty and even more than sensitivity and intimacy. Sin began to destroy this idea of the permanence of marriage that God had instituted from that day until now. Divorce is one of the most painful experiences that you can ever, ever go through because we're talking about not only finances, but we're talking about the in-laws, we're talking about our parents, we're talking about our children, and it is the most painful thing. Some people even compare it, it is worth, worse than the death of a spouse. And yet, once a person has experienced a divorce, he or she is faced with another difficult dilemma, whether or not to remarry. And this is, quite frankly, where a lot of people have lots and lots of opinions about, from pastors to biblical scholars to counselors to parents to friends. People often have different opinions about remarriage. Now, some people believe that God approves of all remarriage for all circumstances and we're free to choose to remarry who we want to choose. Others believe that God may allow remarriage only in certain instances, but doesn't necessarily look kindly upon it. Still, other people feel that no one should remarry except in the case of a spouse's death. And some people feel that no matter what remarriage, uh, what, what the situation, remarriage should be forbidden altogether. And so we have this whole spectrum of perspectives and opinions. Does the Bible teach anything about this subject? I think it does. Did you know that even in Jesus' day, divorce was rampant? It's true. Even in Jesus' day, divorce was rampant. It happened on a regular basis. And in Matthew chapter 19, would you turn there with me, please? In Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19 we see how these religious leaders put Jesus to the test regarding the hard stuff of divorce and remarriage. I want you to look at verse 3 with me. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question. They came to him and they asked, Matthew 19, verse 3, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Another translation reads, for any reason at all. You see, some people in Jesus' day were advocating any reason at all. We have no fault divorce today. And that's what some of these people were advocating, for any and every reason whatsoever. Let me give you some background here. Because Jewish people chose to disobey God by sinning in a number of ways, including intermarrying people from pagan cultures and pagan backgrounds, the Old Testament law permitted a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce. Yes, it was permitted in the Old Testament. A man, not a woman, 
But a man could get his wife a certificate of divorce if some, here it is, indecency was found in her. We read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Well, what does the term indecency mean? By the time this thought got through to where Jesus was at in Jesus' day, it took a life of its own. For some, it could be gross indecency, though not necessarily adultery. For some, rabbis, indecency went from sin to all kinds of real or imagined offenses, including an improperly cooked meal. So, imagine the husband coming home one evening and he would and the casserole was burned or the bread was burned or the pancakes were burned or the eggs were burned or the, the bacon was burned or the sausage was burned. Something was burned and all of a sudden the husband could say, Honey, it's time for a divorce. It's true to an improperly cooked meal. Can you believe that? Some rabbis even taught, listen to this, some rabbis even taught that it was permissible to grant a divorce if the husband saw a more beautiful or prettier woman and she was available to marry. She's better looking than you. She's prettier. She's a newer, upgraded model. And therefore, I'm just going to divorce you. I'm just going to do away with you. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 3. And so they asked the question, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now rather, rather than the, to be pulled into the controversy, Jesus aligned himself with the prophet Malachi, who recorded God's strong feelings about divorce. We read in Malachi that God hates divorce. He hates divorce. Why does he hate it? Because it goes against God's original purpose and it wrecks lives and families and children and causes so much pain. Now, rather than list to all the negative effects of divorce, Jesus reminds them of God's perfect design for marriage. And look at how Jesus responds in verses 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, quoting Genesis, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. Now, frustrated, you can just read in between the lines, frustrated, the Pharisees regrouped, still trying to entrap Jesus, they responded by asking him a tricky, another tricky question. Look at verses 7 through 9. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and tend her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Did you hear what Jesus said? Jesus, first of all, I want you to notice, never said that the faithful offended partner is commanded to leave. The offended partner, the one who has not committed adultery, they are not commanded 
to leave. They are permitted to leave. And even then, only in the case of adultery. Divorce is the exception. It's not the rule. Now this is what someone writes, and I'm quoting. Divorce was not part of God's original design. God allows it only as a concession to human weakness. It always grieves God to see his people divorcing. End of quote. But he allows it. And I believe that there are four clear biblical reasons that the Bible gives for remarriage. First is what is already mentioned, uh, what Jesus mentioned here, and that is immorality or adultery. God hates divorce, as we mentioned, but it also grieves him. It also grieves him when a spouse is unfaithful and commits the act of adultery and pursues an immoral relationship outside of the marital bonds. And so God permits divorce and remarriage in that particular situation where there is an adultery. Uh, The second reason, the second biblical uh, reason given for remarriage is when a spouse abandons, abandons a mate. And I want you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? And I want you to look at verses 10 through 11. This is when a, a, uh, an unbelieving spouse abandons a mate. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. Notice the Apostle Paul writes, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband must not divorce his wife. Let me digress for just a moment here. Paul says, To those people who are already married, whether to a believer or unbeliever, find contentment with your spouse, if at all possible, even though you may be unequally yoked. But he also understands harsh realities, and at times an abused spouse must flee to protect their lives or their children. So separation with the idea of reconciliation is scriptural because we read it right here. A wife does not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried. In other words, there may be a real possibility if there is an abusive relationship that you Get out of the relationship with the idea of separation and with the idea of reconciliation in the future. Now, he addresses those unequally yoked in a marriage, believers who are married to unbelievers. And I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, my page is stuck. I'm so sorry. I don't want to rip my Bible. And is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, 
they are holy. So he, he stops again and says, stay together. If at all possible, even though you may be spiritually imbalanced, unequally yoked. Now notice verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, abandons. That's what it means. If the unbeliever leaves, abandons. Let it be so. Notice, the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Not bound. God has called us to live in peace. Number three, divorce, remarriage. When a spouse dies, when a spouse dies, the other spouse is released from his or her marriage bonds and is free to remarry. And we see this in chapter 7, verse 39. Look at it with me. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if, the, if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And number four, when a marriage, when a marriage ends up in divorce prior to the salvation of the individual, prior to the salvation of the individual, that person can remarry. And this rests on a number of scriptures, but our primary passage of scripture is found in Second Corinthians. Will you turn with me over to Second Corinthians chapter five? Second Corinthians chapter five. And I want us to look at verses 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, notice, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. He's saying that you're a new creature in Christ. The former is gone. That lifestyle, that divorce is in your past. And once you're a Christian person, you have, uh, you can remarry because that divorce is in your past. You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. Notice Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In other words, if you have experienced the pain of a failed marriage before you became a Christian, you're now free to pursue marriage, but this time try, endeavor to choose a godly partner if it didn't happen before. Let me just digress and give three words of encouragement to three different groups of people. The first group, those of you who are not married, those of you who are single people, be careful. Be careful. And be patient. Take your time. Why rush? Go through the seasons of life. Go through fall, winter, spring, and summer. Look at those people that you are possibly going to marry, that you're dating. Look at them. Examine them. Look how they interact with other people. Look at their values. Ask them questions. Go through a period of time with that person as you're dating them. Go through all the seasons of life, so to speak. Don't rush into anything. Be patient. 
it would be a lot better for you to be patient than marry the wrong person. Obviously, we want to have the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and we want these other characteristics in our lives. And I tell single people all the time, I say, the things that you want in your mate-to-be, you, you do those things yourselves. You emulate those things. And so if you want a person that's kind, you be kind. If you want a person that's loving, you be loving. And, 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 uh, and we read about that, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering, uh, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So be patient. Go through a season of life. Now, I understand that some of you are older and you admit your person, your spouse has died and uh, you're more mature and it doesn't really apply to you. I understand that some of you would say that, but I'm talking about for our younger adults and middle-aged people. Don't rush into anything. Uh, Be patient. Be careful. Don't allow loneliness to rush you into a commitment that you could live to regret. Number two, to marry people... To marry people who are struggling, we all struggle at times. To marry people who are struggling, stay committed. Stay committed. Get through the hard times so that you can get on to better times. Don't throw in the towel too soon. You're just a right around the corner, so to speak. You, you, may, you may just have the breakthrough next week, next, next month. You may just have that breakthrough you're looking for. And then number two, to those of you who are married and you're struggling, get help. Get help. I've testified that the greatest thing that my wife and I ever did in the seventh year of marriage was to go to a Christian marriage counselor, and I went kicking and screaming. Who am I? I'm a pastor. I've had all these marriage classes. and Who am I? You know, I, I don't need help. Oh, man. It was the best. It was the best use of my time. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. Don't be prideful. If you need help, get help. You can come to me. I'll help. You, you can. We can. We can hook you up with a Christian marriage counselor. We have a number of them over in this way. I'm not sure about this way, but I know a number of them over here. Stay committed. Get help if you need help. The third group I'm talking to this morning are those of you who are remarried. Those of you who are remarried. And I have a couple words for you. First of all, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that you found somebody that you are compatible with and they're compatible with you and you have a loving relationship. Don't take that for granted. And I know you don't. Thank God that you found somebody. Thank God for that. And I have a second word, and that is, be patient with Christendom and people that judge you and that don't understand. And I want to let you know that I will never, and I don't think anybody in this church, will ever look at your background and look at you because you're remarried as a second-class citizen. Nobody's going to go on your past and say, oh, did they meet all the biblical grounds for divorce and marriage? Did they do all that stuff? I'm not going to do that. 
to those of us who are married and remarried, I'm much more interested, as your pastor, in where you're at right now and where you're headed in the future. Where you're at right now and where you're headed in the future. What's in the past is in the past. I, I, I want to I want to close. Let me conclude. No matter on a scale of one to ten, one being very bad and ten being very good, no matter where we're at on this scale, if we're married, God's the answer. God's the answer. The Lord is the answer. He is the answer. Believe me, he's the answer. He's the glue can stick all the stuff together and keep it all together. He's the answer. I told you those statistics. One and two, it within the first ten years of marriage, the second marriage, it's at sixty-five percent. Sixty-five percent of people that get married again end up in divorce. And the third marriage, it goes up to seventy-four percent. But listen to this. When a couple, according to an Ivy League major study on marriage, it was either Harvard or Princeton, one of those Ivy League schools, when they did this study and they studied all these couples, they found that when a couple prayed together, read the Bible together, and worshiped together, the divorce rate dropped to 1 in 1,114. And that's the difference that God can make in your life. And that's the difference that Christ can make in your life. You cannot do this apart from God's help. It's just too hard. God hasn't left us on our own without his resources to help us, those of us who are married or remarried. Would you bow your heads with me?